Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. Norman Mailer passed away at the age of 84 in November 2007. His first novel, The Naked and the Dead, captured the imagination of an American public still recuperating from the Second World War. In the mid-1960s, he galvanized literature with the publication of Armies of the Night, his powerful narrative of the October 1967 March on Washington against the war in Vietnam. Among Mailer's other works are the novels Harlot's Ghost, Ancient Evenings, Oswald's Tale, and his last work, The Castle in the Forest, as well as nonfiction works including collections of essays, biographies of Marilyn Monroe and Pablo Picasso, and his acclaimed nonfiction novel, The Executioner's Song. This was reconstructed from two interviews, one conducted in 1995 by Richard A. Lupoff and myself, and the other a solo effort in 1998 from Richard Lupoff. We start with a question from the 1998 interview asked by Richard A. Lupoff. When did you know that you were going to be a writer? And how did you know? I think in my freshman year at Harvard, uh, I went there with the idea that I would I wanted to become an aeronautical engineer. I'd actually gotten into MIT, uh, but what I noticed I grew up in Brooklyn was when I mentioned MIT to the girls, they didn't react at all. And when I said that I'd also been accepted by Harvard, they go, Harvard? And then they'd look at me with dewy eyes. And um, I thought, well, there's no question I'm going to go to Harvard. Of course, Harvard was not much on aeronautical engineering. And uh, in my freshman year, I started writing, and it just took everything over. I, I found finally there was something I was good at. You know how kids are. They're always looking for something they're good at. They're not that great a baseball player, football player, this, that. But, and they just want to star in something. And I never had. And now suddenly writing just seemed exciting and natural and lively to me. And I kept writing. I must have written, oh, I think I probably wrote 20 short stories my uh, freshman year at Harvard. When you attended Harvard, there were uh, three major student publications, The Crimson, The Lampoon, and The Advocate. What, what was The Advocate and what did you do there? The Advocate uh, was a literary magazine, and um, we, were, we were the poorest of the three. We always had money troubles, and on top of that, we were the least well-regarded. The Crimson was creating future journalists of, of a high level. Ben Bradley, for instance, was in yes. my class, and I think, I'm sure he was on The Crimson. I never asked him, don't know him that well, but I'm sure he was on The Crimson, and from there went on to have this huge career as a newspaper editor. So that was the powerhouse, but you had to give yourself to The Crimson. It was like playing football. You know, you spent... Uh, in the competition, kids must have spent 12 hours a day working for the Crimson. How they did anything else, I don't know. And the Lampoon was very clubby and marvelous. They had a marvelous little building. And we were in the stern of the Lampoon, literally, because the Lampoon was a sort of pie-shaped building. And then there we were at the back of it, sort of breathing the exhaust of the, of the Lampoon. Uh, the, the Advocate uh, was also had a, had a charming cup of, had a charming floor, the top of an old building, old wooden building, fourth floor. And it had a wonderful smell of uh, beer and Coca-Cola, I remember that, <laughs> in the carpet. 
plus a few old drinks, just a faint odor of puke because we'd have some hideous drinking parties where kids would be thrown up all over the, during the initiations, stuff like that. They'd sort of scrub the puke out, and you were left with the beer and Coca-Cola, which, which came with the site. But, but what did you, Norman Mailer, do for the advocate? Well, I wrote a few stories for them, and uh, uh, I think I became some sort of editor in my last year, or my junior year, because by the senior year, you generally moved out for the new people who were coming in. Then what happened is I wrote a story. I got on in my sophomore year, and the story I wrote that they published, I think, at the end of my sophomore year, ended up winning Story Magazine's uh, national contest. So that made my way very easy because my family, who were a little concerned that I no longer want to be an engineer but a writer, uh, were absolutely, um, uh, what can I say the word, they lost all doubt. They were now convinced, yes, he's going to become a writer. And so unlike most young writers who, in those days whose parents would oppose their becoming a writer and say, please, get a job, do this, do that, they were all for it. So they didn't argue with the idea. Norman's going to be a writer was their attitude. Uh, that was a huge piece of luck and having, you know, having parents that were that receptive to the idea. Did you have any, any inspirational professors, any idols who caused you to become the kind of writer you were? You no, but I had some very good writing teachers. I had a man named um, Ted Morrison who was very good. Uh, there was a man whose name is known in literary circles, Robert Gorham Davis. Uh, he was excellent. And then finally I had Robert Hillier, who was a poet, and uh, also very good. Those three were very good. And, I, and, and in fact, I even remember my freshman writing teacher, a man named Simpson, I forget his first name. But in any event, the act of taking a writing course every year for four years at Harvard uh, limited the rest of my education a bit, but it was I kept, kept me writing. I was writing the entire time through college. There's controversy over whether anybody can teach anybody to write at all, that, that maybe the, the entire enterprise is a farce, and you, you either find it within yourself or it's just not there. How do you feel about well, that? Well, I, I, think, I think they leave something out of account. You develop a sense of an audience when you take a writing course. I th that's the main virtue of it. You can have a good teacher or a bad teacher, uh, and it helps a lot if the teacher's a good one and has in an instinct on when to criticize you and when to compliment you. But the key thing is you begin to learn that when you write something, people are going to have 360 degrees of reaction to it. And that toughens you up in a way because in the beginning, people are terribly afraid to write since their fear is, my God, if I write what's in my head, they'll come in and kill me. And, it, you know, it takes a few years for writers to realize that actually the reverse is true. You can write something absolutely scandalous, shocking, and what have you, and nobody pays any attention. <laughs> I mean, that's the second blow that writer, young writers receive, that, that they're less scary than they thought. First, they're afraid of how much they have to be afraid of what's in their head. And then later, they realize there's nothing in my head that seems to scare anyone. You worked briefly at a uh, state hospital in Massachusetts. I worked there, yeah. Uh, and, and I understand you wrote a play about this experience, uh, um, originally called The Naked and the Dead. Is yes, that true? Yes. The play, uh, nothing ever became of it. At one point, I think uh, the Harvard Dramat was thinking a little bit about doing it, but not too seriously. And the title, however, had a much more successful career. Yes. What happened is when I handed in the first 200 pages of my war novel to Little Brown, because it went to Little Brown before it went to Reinhardt, uh, somebody asked me, what's the title? And I hadn't given it a title yet. And I said, oh, and I thought of that old title. I said, oh, call it The Naked and the Dead. While The Naked and the Dead was your first published novel, it was far from your first published work. And it was uh, not the first novel you ever wrote. No, I'd written two before. Mm -hmm. what, what were those early works? Well, the first one was called No Percentage. and I, I wrote it when I was about, uh, oh, I don't think I was 18 when I wrote it. 
And uh, it wasn't very good. It was really pretty awful. The sort of book that an 18-year-old would write who <laughs> didn't know too much yet about writing at all. And the next one was a very long book. I worked in that mental hospital for a week, no more. I couldn't take it more than a week. It was a true hellhole because in those days, the patients were all, uh, you know, they didn't have all those sedatives they have now where now if you work in a mental hospital, a lot of it can, you can feel as if you're working on a living death ward, a morgue a morgue where bodies are walking around. But in those days, they used to just beat the patients up. It was really? truly a hellhole. You know, patient get out of line. And the first advice I was given is when there's a fight between two patients, wait till one wins and then we both jump the winner. And it was ugly because they really, uh, you know, you have guys working there for 60 hours a week for 19 bucks a week. Anyway, at the end of a week, I just wanted to quit. Uh, I'd seen too much brutality and I, I had a feeling if I hang around long enough, I'll get to be just like these guys. Yeah. I discovered there's a certain pleasure in beating people up. Uh, so that ate at me, and then I so I said I want to be transferred to another ward, and he put me in the old folks ward. The old folks ward, and these old folks would look at you with angelic looks on their faces. You thought that they were looking at you as if you were their savior, and what you discovered was no, they were crapping in their pants, and they had this sweet look that yes. probably been the first bowel movement they'd had in two days. Well, that book was called A Transit to Narcissus. You know, I worked there for a week, and I wrote, worked on that book for nine months. It eventually got published many years later by a gentleman named Howard Ferding, who has a small press. And he published it in manuscript. In other words, what you have are the manuscript type pages. Sold it for about 100 bucks a, a copy, that sort of thing. I don't know. I don't even know if he ever sold them all out. And maybe there's still a few around. And it got reviewed in the Times and stuff like that. I came across a few other titles here. Uh, Left Shoe on Right Foot. Yeah. A, a Calculus of Heaven. The Greatest Thing in the World. Well, The Greatest Thing in the World was a story that won the uh, Story Magazine contest. Mm -hmm. And uh, Calculus of Heaven was just a... Uh, that was a, a short novel. And it was published in, um, I, honestly, I can't remember the collection. Edwin Seaver used to put out this collection of new writers. He was one of the first to put out collections of new writers. And so uh, Arthur Miller was in that collection. Uh, I'm trying to think of who else. Uh, quite a few well-known writers. Uh, that is what had been published before I sat down to write The Naked and the Dead. You and Miller lived in the same apartment house at one time, didn't we you? We did. We did indeed. Were you, were you buddies? Did you talk about writing? A little bit. Actually, he helped me on, a, on the contract for The Naked and the Dead. Uh, what I think about that's funny, looking back on it now, is we sometimes meet. It was a brownstone. There were only four families living in I the see. house. And we'd often meet down on that long table where they lay the mail in the, in the brownstone entry. And we'd chat a little. And I always thought he was rather ordinary. And he always thought, I'm sure, the same of me. I think we each walked away thinking, gee, that guy never amounted much. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the year that uh, All My Sons was produced. And in the following year uh, came Death of a Salesman. So that uh, we're both totally wrong about the, the, in, in our prognosis of the other's career. I uh, uh, did an interview with him, which is like as so many of those interviews go. It was very pleasant while we were doing the interview. But when it came to the writing, I got much more severe. You know, I, I've noticed that over and over and over again. Journalists, I'll have a marvelous time with a journalist. We'll have a very good interview, and then I read it. And I say, what the hell happened? This isn't <laughs> what we were. But, you know, you start thinking about it. But you it. can't falsify the quotations. No, no, no. He was, he was, very, he was a very good interview, and, and the, the quotes were good. I didn't falsify them at all. But I started thinking about his relation to Marilyn Monroe, and my basic take on it was he never understood her. And he kept writing piously about her and how wonderfully sweet and lovely she was. And all the while she was going crazy with these inner, inner lividities. You know, she was getting more and more hateful because what she needed, God knows what she needed at that point. You, you know, I think if, let's say if I had been with her, which I always found her very attractive, she'd have wrecked me. I mean, yeah. Miller's pretty strong. She didn't destroy him. She just um, uh, paralyzed a good many nerves in him before it was all over. You did a book about her, did you not? Yeah. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, years later, I did a book, and I think that's he never forgave me for what I wrote about him in that book, because I didn't see him as this all-conquering god. Miller's as vain as they come. You were one of a series of writers for whom World War II was uh, some kind of inspirational starting point in their career, and I'm thinking here of Gore Vidal, Joseph Heller, James Jones, Kurt Vonnegut, uh, the list can go on, Leon Uris, James Michener, Herman Wauk. We all had the same experience so that we were a generation, and, and that's crucial. It, it created us as a generation. Uh, Vietnam hasn't had the same effect on young writers because Vietnam divided the country, and so that experience is a double one. For some, it was the war in Vietnam, and for some, it was the war against the war in Vietnam, and so you don't have that simple generational sense that is a true point of reference. Don't forget, it wasn't just that we were in the war, but our readers had been in the war. And so, so we all were in connection with one another. I can't think of any other period in American letters when not only were all these books written and a, lot, and a good many of them were damn good, but they all did very well. You, you know, a, a lot of careers were launched by that. That did not happen with uh, the war in Vietnam. A few very good writers have come out of that war, sure. but they just, you can't say their careers were launched. Most people don't know their name to this day. Well, if you talk about a writer like Michael Herr, who wrote Dispatches, well, I mean, it's a wonderful book, and he got very, very good reviews, but it didn't launch his career. I think Tim O'Brien came out a little better, but same thing with Tim. One curious fact was that this was a war that everybody felt had to be fought, and yet we look at the work of Vonnegut, we look at the work of Heller, we look at yours, and you're all very anti-war. Uh, there's something about being in war that tends to make you anti-war. <laughs> it's not a. Uh, there are very few people who love it. I always, I always was taken with Apocalypse Now, because Coppola caught those few guys who do love war. You know that dance, the helicopters, is just uh, incredibly uh, memorable. But generally speaking, uh, I remember war in the main as just being. Uh, 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 well, uh, you, you know, your bowels were always a real consideration. Fatigue was a huge matter. You're covered with mud if you were in the Philippines as I was. and The living conditions were just so damn crummy that part of the hatred of war was why didn't they give us better living conditions? The Army learned that lesson. Apparently, it's much better to be at war now. Yet at the same time, this was the great war that had justification as opposed to all the ones that came after. Well, I sometimes think of, uh, I mean, I had I obviously had a lot of animosity toward the Army, and it wasn't an institution that was tailor-made for me. But at the same time, I believe the war essentially was okay. I still do. I feel that war had to be fought, and just as well we fought it. I wonder what I would have felt like if I'd hated the war. I often thought, what would have been like if I'd been in Vietnam and hated this war? My God, that would have been horrible. But the irony, of course, is that in Vietnam, with all the horrors, they really, the soldiers, generally speaking, had more of a good time as well as a horror time. I mean, it was a time filled with good times and horrors, and therefore a more interesting war in many ways than our war, which was dull and full of slogging. You, you know, I, I, I can remember going on endless patrols, three, four patrols a week, which we'd cover 15 miles and come back eight hours later just covered with mud. It was more of a physical feat than it was a combat. So, you know, it, it wasn't agreeable. It wrecked your liver. It did bad things to you. Uh, people got very ill from that war. You see, I think what happens with, with a war generation is, is that it's a watershed. And those who went through the experience together uh, have something in common with their readers that you don't have in a situation, in a contemporary situation. You know, we came out of the war. Our readers had been in the war. And so when we wrote books about the war, there was an immediate contact. Uh, and it uh, and you could mark the period. You, you know, 
we, we were the, a generation of post-war writers. And we all have that link. And now that it's been 53 years since that war ended, do these works have validity and they have contemporary value? I think you'd have to go through them one by one. You, you know, uh, Catch-22 certainly has validity, From Here to Eternity, The Naked and the Dead, they all have validity. Uh, there were a lot of minor works that I don't know that they lasted. There were dubious works like Guard of Honor by James Gould Cousins, which received wonderful reviews at the time, and I, no one seems to talk about it anymore. Critics have suggested that, that you were influenced by, by many writers, uh, no, most notably, uh, I, I thought, uh, Tolstoy and James T. Farrell. Mm -hmm. um, who else do you, do you feel may have contributed to your own growth as a writer, and, and, and whom would you recommend to young men or women who wish to pursue a career in literature today? My influences were direct. There was Tolstoy, to a lesser degree, Dostoevsky. There was Thomas Wolfe. There was James T. Farrell. To a small extent, uh, Hemingway and Steinbeck. I'm talking about for the Naked and the Dead. But I'd read all the contemporary American novelists of that period. There was a rich sense of the American novel then. Now the trouble is you almost feel like a specialist. An author comes to you, has a certain style. Who do you recommend? Well, you have to know a lot about. Do you recommend DeLillo? Do you recommend John Irving? Do, do you recommend Updike? Do you recommend Roth? Uh, so forth. Do you recommend me? You, you know. In those days, it was different. You just read them all. You learned from all of them, and it was a simpler world in a way. You could read them all and somehow incorporate all of it into your own work one way or another. Would that not still be a good idea? I today? don't know because I'm, I'm not sure. My guess is maybe not because in a way, we've all gone very far apart from one another in our preoccupations. I'd like you if, you, if you would, to talk a bit about your own working method. Do you start with a character, a theme, or or an event, or an image, uh, do you outline, or, or does it all just come out of the brain? Well, each each book was different. Yes. And, and uh, in The Naked and the Dead, I was very careful. I had index cards on every character. I, I listed, I had the equivalent of actors called the backstory, which, which is that I just kept uh, going in more and more and more for things I wouldn't put into the book. I knew an awful lot about each character before I began to write about them. I almost created them with a card index. Uh, I never did that again, oddly enough. But basically, if, if I have a method, it would probably be that I can't really do a book until I find the characters. And my books are never plot-driven. Uh, I'm not that good at plot. I arrive at plot through having characters have things happen between them. I'm never happy trying to figure out a plot because if I figure out the plot too soon, then my characters get locked into the plot and they don't develop. My idea of a, some modicum of fun while writing a novel is that my characters surprise me and they get take turns I didn't expect, and I have to keep up with the characters. Whereas with a plot, you're just trying to figure out how to make the character plausible so they can go through the gears of the plot. Basically, that's my method. I've said over and over that when you write a novel, you can't write a novel by an act of will. You can, but it's not going to be a good novel. That you have to really wait until you get the idea, and that each time it's like falling in love. You know, I can do a book of nonfiction, you know, put the purse on the table, tell me the topic, and if I'm interested, I'll do it. I always feel more like a, a professional prize fighter when I take on a piece of nonfiction. One in the sense that the way they say is, all right, I'll do this fight. The money's good enough. I'll do the fight. Whereas with a novel, it's never that way. As I say, it's like falling in love. You can't say I want to start a novel on Thursday. Is it fun to write a novel? Ew, I wouldn't call it fun. It's more like having a deep relationship with uh, someone who's very difficult. <laughs> and what happens when you come to the end of it? Well, the two good times for me in writing a novel are when I'm thinking about it in the weeks and months or years before I start a novel. And I'm thinking about it. That's a marvelous time relative to the writing, which is drudgery and hard work and, and worry and concern. And then when you finish, there's one moment when the whole book comes over you. 
or at least when you finish a first draft, you feel you've got essentially got the book, or whichever draft it takes. But you, at a certain moment, you feel I've got the book generally. For the rest, is just clean up and details. That's a very good feeling. So a novel starts with a very good feeling and ends with a very good feeling, and in between is just an awful lot of dull, heavy, straight slogging through mud. I mean, I'm always happy I was in the uh, infantry in a certain sense. Cavalry, but they took away our horses, so we were infantry because that gave me a sense of uh, going on patrol and dragging through mud for 12 miles on, in a given day. Gave me a good preparation for writing a novel. How much do you revise? Now with the word processor, I, I never use a word processor. I, I, I just write longhand. I've got, I'm well enough off now to afford a good assistant, and she'll type it up for me. And then I'll edit it and send it back to her. In the old days, because you had to have some regard for the typist, I might revise something twice. Now I can revise it six, eight, ten times if it comes to it. So I tend to probably write, my first drafts probably tend to be a little less good than they used to be years ago, but I think the finished product is at least equal because I go over it so carefully so many times. Uh, you have had strong political feelings all your life. Uh, is the legend true about your smuggling money from France into Franco-Spain? Yes. Actually, we didn't smuggle money. We smuggled leaflets in. I don't recall smuggling any money in, but if we did, it was a small amount. Yes. So small, I don't even remember, $100, a couple hundred dollars. No, we smuggled in leaflets. What I did was much smaller than what my sister did some months later. Because originally, I was going to go down there with my first wife, and we were going to take out a few escaped prisoners from a Spanish jail. That was the original. But they couldn't arrange the escape while we were down there. So we came back, and then a couple months later, they were able to do it. They figured out a way to have the prisoners escape. My sister went down with a writer you may know, Barbara Prope Solomon. Anyway, the two of them went down there. My sister's named Barbara, too. And the two Barbers picked up with the aid of an intermediary, a Spanish kid named uh, Paco uh, Goitia. Boitia Garcia was his name. Picked up these two prisoners. Paco accompanied them to a given place where it was greedy take off. And then the two girls drove these guys up within a mile of the border where they climbed over some hills and escaped from Spain into France. This is about 48. 48 is the year we're talking about just, just now. The younger Norman Mailer was uh, famous as a man of passion and of excesses, a womanizer, a drunkard, on occasion a man of violence. Uh, do you feel that this was a fair appraisal? Yeah, on balance probably was fair in, in that I've smoking a lot of pot, drinking a lot, getting into a lot of stuff one way or another, and finally it erupted. I did, uh, I'm not going to talk about it particularly, but I did stab my second wife, Adele. That changed everything. And it, it was, uh, you know, my children have had to pay for it more than I have. So those were sort of explosive years. We're talking about from about um, 54 through to about uh, 61, and then it continued through the 60s, but at a less intense pace because what happened is the war in Vietnam began to heat up about 65, and then all sorts of things began to pop loose, but by now there were political movements. So a lot of the anger and the suppressed violence one felt could go into these political movements, and one did become active in them. There was a march on the Pentagon, and... Um, that was an extraordinary. You, know, you, you speak of it as a work of journalism, but actually it was, uh, it was something else altogether, which is I found a peculiar, curious form that I uh, really received from Henry Adams. He used to write about himself in the third person, and he talked about his, his experiences in Washington, say Adams felt this, Adams felt that. I remember I read the book when I was a freshman at Harvard and didn't understand it. I figured what an odd way to write. But when it came time to write about the march on the Pentagon, I used Mailer. Norman Mailer became the uh, central character, and it was uh, delightful to do that. It was a great, lib not exactly liberation, but there was a, a fluidity, a facility uh, to writing that way. It was very agreeable because I found that you, when you make yourself a character that way and talk about yourself in the third person, 
your love of irony can play around it. So here is Mailer, and I keep talking about, you know, this peculiar hero we have, Mailer. We can't really call him a hero. He's more a protagonist. You know, there he is. He's good at this. He's terrible at that. And I was able to sort of stay in, in judgment upon myself. And it was a huge psychic cleansing at the same time that my style got better than it had ever been before. So that book, I wouldn't exactly call it journalism. It has no word you can apply to it. It wasn't a memoir because it only takes place over four days. It certainly wasn't journalism because I didn't interview anyone for it. I just recalled and remembered my experiences. In terms of my writing, it was as well-written as anything I've ever done. So let's say it was a very well-written account of four days in the March on the Pentagon. Would this, would this relate in any way to Capote's book, In Cold Blood? No, no. Later, there was a lot of discussion, but mainly by Capote, uh -huh. about how I lifted uh, his techniques and methods for um, uh, the executioner song. But in fact, Capote lifted it from Lillian Ross, who uh, used to use this what Capote called nonfiction fiction. Oh, I forget what he called nonfiction it. Nonfiction novel. I always thought that was a very peculiar very phrase. Very way to do it. Yeah. I wasn't any better. I called the executioner song a true life story, which was corny, and I wish I hadn't called it that. Finally, um, you, you know, and uh, now they call it things like uh, factive and dreadful words, <sighs> awful stuff. But finally, there is that in-between where you write about real people as if they're in a novel. And uh, which is what began and gave me this idea that finally the difference between fiction and nonfiction is, is much smaller than people realize. But in any event, Lillian Ross wrote about um, John Huston's making of the movie um, Red Badge of Courage. And Lillian Ross covered it in detail. It appeared in The New Yorker, issue after issue, way back in the early 50s. And it was a marvelous piece of writing. And that was the beginning of this method, you see that Capote claimed he discovered for himself and claimed I'd stolen from him, which was absurd. You know, the method was there to use. Uh, I didn't need Capote to show me the way. You, you won the National Book Award and the Pulitzer Prize in 1968 for The Armies of the Night. Um, thus, an author who first won fame as a novelist was honored as a journalist. For me, all forms of nonfiction, most particularly history, are essentially uh, novels. They're just novels that have more facts in them than the average uh, novel. In other words, a novel, if you have 100 elements of fact in a given narrative, a novel might have four facts where a piece of history might have eight or ten. But we have to recognize that the vast majority of facts in any given situation are not even known to the author. These are all works of the imagination. History is a work of the imagination, which is, which is more key to fact than the novel. But it still is, it's, not, it's still as fiction as far as I'm concerned. So it, there's no line between the two? There's yes, sort of there's, a line, there's a line and that there's more adherence to fact and to certain canons of, of, the, uh, of the writing industry involved. In other words, if you're writing history, you have to obey a few uh, concerns that you don't have to obey if you're a novelist. But I think the, the difference is much more exaggerated than the reality. The reality is that they're pretty close. They're certainly our family. They're first cousins in novel writing and history. They are not separate creatures at all. At the same time as you were writing Armies of the Night, and this was after Capote wrote In Cold Blood, Hunter Thompson and Tom Wolfe were also working in a similar vein. Did you have any contact with them? Did any of you talk about this new kind of journalism? Yeah, we never, uh, Hunter and, and Tom Wolfe and I never had any uh, personal contact. We never worked together in any way. We just happened to be, you know, there's a notion of, 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 the, of the zeitgeist, that there's a certain spirit. This spirit pulls artists in, and they all work in the same direction. Is you don't know the personality of the writer. What's the use of listening to something that's written, reading something that's been done in a hurry, if you don't know anything about the writer? The story's empty. You continued uh, after Armies of the Night with similar works, and then you stopped. Why I, did you stop? I just got tired of it. Part, I didn't really stop completely until I did the Executioner song. 
there were a lot of people saying, well, that's the only way he can write. The only way he can write is by himself. So I thought, well, the hell with all you I can write in another way altogether. One of my favorite remarks is one that Andre G once met, which is, please don't understand me too quickly. Uh, and there's an arrogance in, in book reviewers and critics that uh, never fails to astound me. I don't know where they think they know as much as they pretend to know. Is the Norman Mailer the character of, say, Armies of the Night, is that the real Norman Mailer, or is that a fictional person? No author ever has put anyone else or themselves into a book and been totally accurate. When you write a book, you try to create a character who's alive in the book, and you really don't worry while you're writing how true it is. I try to write about everyone in the execution of song as accurately as I possibly could. I called it a novel because I thought it was in the form of a novel, but I wanted it to be absolutely as accurate to the facts as I could find those facts. And yet there were any number of people who were pleased or displeased with their portrait, but they didn't feel that was quite them. And my feeling was, well, all right, I did my best. That's as close as you ever come to anyone. So the same thing is true with the armies of the night. A Norman Mailer. You know, each of you have many Richards in you. It's not as if one could define you definitively with one pen portrait. Uh, you were a founder of the Village Voice in yes. the newspaper in 1955. What were your intentions? And after 40-plus years, what do you see as the state of journalism today and its direction? One of my closest friends, Dan Wolf, who later ended up being an advisor to Mayor Koch many, many years later, was, I think he was about 40 years old at the time, and he wanted to start a paper. And his idea was, at that time in Greenwich Village, there was uh, the Villager was the only paper, and that was sort of a... That was sort of a classy shopper, and that's about all it was. And so he wanted to start something called uh, the Village Gazette. And uh, he brought in a friend named Ed Fancher, and we each put up, I think, $15,000, the three of us. Later brought in another fellow named Howard Bennett, who also put in $15,000. So the, the voice essentially in his first year ran on $60,000. I gave it the name. At a certain point, I said, Village Gazette, let's, let's call it the Village Voice. And that, that stuck, and, and the name was kept. I didn't work on the paper during that whole hideous, difficult, hard period of getting it launched. Uh, I came in after the paper had been out for about 8 or 10 or 12 weeks. And I started doing a column, which created a great deal of rage, indignation. It was a very insulting column. I had certain ideas about you've got to wake up your audience. So I insulted my, my readers. You know, I said, I don't know if it's worthwhile writing for a bunch of people who are as lazy and disappointed and envious and disagreeable as all of you. <laughs> <laughs> it was sort of in that tone. And, of course, it created a storm. And people said, get rid of this pest, this narcissistic pest mailer. It was, it was like that. And it was a tremendous tempest in our little village teapot. But they come back and buy the paper next week. Yes, they came back, and uh, it worked. But then finally what happened is I began to have run-ins with people who were working on the paper uh, because they kept having typos that were driving me crazy. And so finally I got into a war with them, and I quit. I, let me say parenthetically, I smoke a marijuana like a fiend every week. If, if there's any, ever been a time in my life when I was remotely close to Hunter Thompson, it was, it was in, those, <laughs> in those years. And so I just quit. Finally, I quit the paper in high dudgeon. The moment I quit, the paper began to find its legs because what we'd had is a huge disagreement on policy. I wanted the paper to be revolutionary, radical, crazy, pushing forward. Dan wanted it to be staid and conservative and just a little bit to the left of the villager. And we couldn't get along. We were just fighting every day over what the, where the paper should go. The moment I quit, a void was left. And the void that was left was that there was really a potentiality for a leftist paper in New York, in the village at that time. And Fancher and, and Wolf, once they didn't have to be combating me every day, sensed that void and moved into it. And a lot of writers began to write for the voice who were very talented. Jules Pfeiffer came along with his extraordinary cartoons. Yes. And a year later, the, or the, the voice actually broke even and, and began to be successful. And five years later, it was uh, uh, 
uh, a money cow for the people who'd invested in it. The only investment in my life I ever made that returned a huge profit was the Village Voice. And a few years later, a, a group of very radical people came along and started the East Village Other, as I recall it. Yes, well, I think Howard Bennett started it. That was Howard. Yeah, he was disaffected and he left the Voice. He also left the Voice. Well, let, let's let's stay on this subject for a moment longer, and 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 I'll reiterate the second part of my question, which is the the state of journalism today and the direction of journalism today. Well, it's an awfully large question for me to even tackle, but in many ways, journalism is a lot better than it used to be. However, uh, it's much more accurate, more responsible, it's more this, it's more that. But there's a fundamental built-in structural weakness in journalism, which is the stories have to be written too quickly. And there's also a nastiness at the heart of journalism, which is if you don't get the story right, it's almost to your advantage. Because let's say if you've done damage to someone, provided it isn't legal damage, and you misinterpret them in the story, they come back with more news and more information the next day, and you can keep a story going that way. So there isn't, there isn't really a, a high motivation to get all the facts straight on your first version of the story. Just get the story out, and it'll become an actor in, in the process. So that's one of the things that happens. Another is that um, the limited space tends to um, reduce everyone to stereotypes, and newspapers like stereotypes. So in that sense, in many ways, journalism is not at all can never be wholly successful. You know, I'm a novelist, so I'm not going to yes. like uh, journalism. Uh, you, you know, I don't think I'm. I don't think it's fair for me to give an appraisal of journalism. Uh, you ran for mayor of New York. Yeah. Uh, you and Jimmy Breslin were associated. Yeah. At, at yeah. The he time. was running for president of the city council. Uh, question arises again as to whether this was uh, a lark or or what my anarchist friends sometimes call an attentat. Uh, or, or was it a serious bid for office? Oh, we were serious. You, you know, uh, we were scared. We were serious. We were working. I was working harder than I ever worked in my life. The idea of running in fun used to just appall me. Uh, Breslin, who, you know, played every game a journalist could play for years, now suddenly was on the other side of it. And he was saying, these, these guys are no damn good. No, we'd, uh, he used to have one joke, which was whenever something good happened and our fortunes prospered, he turned to me and he'd say, we're in trouble. We're in real trouble. Because the idea was if you got elected in those years, you got shot. Don't forget this is 69, yes. right after Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy. The idea of, well, if we ever won and, and we're running New York, how long would we last? So he used to have this little joke, we're in trouble. We're in real trouble. Every time uh, we saw a hopeful sign in our campaign. Norman Mail, you, you have been engaged in some famous and monumental feuds in your career. If you would discuss at least briefly your relationship with folks like uh, uh, William Buckley, uh, the late James Jones, and Gore Vidal. Well, they're totally different feuds, and uh, the one with Jones was not a deep feud. I mean, we never spent a lot of time attacking one another or anything like that. It was just we weren't much friends at the end, which I regret. I did love From Here to Attorney. I thought it was a great book. Gore Vidal and I had a big one that went on for years, but we finally made it up when I was president of Penn because I thought I'm supposed to be bringing writers together, not having feuds. So I put out a few feelers, and he sent a few back, and we ended up bearing the hatchet mm -hmm. in shallow soil. Uh, what about Buckley? We never had a feud as such. We had a debate at Madonna Temple in Chicago that I always claimed I won. And to this day, I think I won. I think Buckley wouldn't admit it, but that's because he's not about to go around saying I ever lost anything. Since then, we just, oh, once in a while, we have some sniper fire back and forth, and we kind of grin and shove each other a little when we meet at a party. But, but it, there's nothing really there. Of, of all your works, these 30 books plus films and other works, which pleased you the most? You know, for years, I would never answer that question. I'd say, I have nine children. I'm not going to tell you which one's my favorite because three days from now, I could change my mind. And um, so I've been that way about my books. But I think probably I've got to start naming them. 
because the one that I think is my best book is one that very few people have read relative to uh, uh, the others, and that's Ancient Evenings. There's a, generally a feeling that's dismissive about it, about, oh, well, there was that huge book he wrote about Egypt that uh, isn't very good. Well, they're wrong. It's my best book. It's my deepest book. It's my hardest to read. It's very structured. It's got a lot of, uh, oh, a lot of literary uh, handiwork in it, put it that way. And uh, it's not a comfortable book to read, but I think that I have more to say in that book than anything else I've ever read, uh, read or written. I wanted, to, I wanted to withdraw from America for a while because I've been doing nothing but write about America. It was the 80s when I wrote that book, 70s and the 80s. America was hell-bent toward wealth at that point. The revolution was over. It was a country I hardly understood any longer because all the wrong guys, from my point of view, were winning. And they're still winning. I mean, I felt out of it. I felt like a defeated almost a guerrilla army now, for the last, part of a guerrilla army for the last 20 years. And this guerrilla army that I belong to, we all fight in this guerrilla army more than we ever fight the opposition. Don't know how to fight the opposition. So in a certain sense, I just wanted to withdraw from America for a while and try to understand what another culture was like. And it, it happened bit by bit. I, I didn't start off by writing Ancient Evenings. I was going to write a, an historical novel that would go through many periods. Each chapter would be about a different era, the Egyptians, the Greeks, the Romans, the Middle Ages, so forth. Too ambitious a novel. I didn't have the culture to begin to write it without spending 20 years in research. So and I ended. I never got out of Egypt. I started Egypt and thought that would be a chapter. And as I say, I never got out of it. It took 11 years. I found it fascinating because in a way it enabled me to understand the rich. Because in Egypt, it was very, very important to have a proper funeral, which meant everything, the amulets, the talismans, the prayers, the food that was left in the tomb for the dead man, all of that. Because what happens when you died, you wandered down into the land of the dead. And in that land of the dead, if you could pass through the land of the dead successfully, then you reach the blessed fields and you live forever. But if you didn't pass through the land of the dead, which was filled with dragons and lakes of flaming oil, people full of treachery, if you didn't make it and you were killed in the land of the dead, then you died a second time, and that was it. And there were prayers the Egyptians had of, oh, they prayed to one, one or another god, and they said, do not let me die in the land of the, a second death in the land of the dead. The ancient evenings is different from your other works in that it does deal with this ancient civilization for which some, but not much, remains that we can decipher to bring out the day-to-day -day life. Uh, so it almost becomes a science fiction. For you to write it. Well, it's the it? reverse of science fiction. It's going backwards instead of forward. But yes, it's as unrelated to our lives as science fiction. I was interested at the time in separating out for myself everything that was the Judeo-Christian tradition that I've been writing in, as opposed to everything that came before it. So my my test through the book was to cut out the anachronisms, because as you start writing a book like that, you discover an untold number of anachronisms that creep into uh, what you're writing, and I wanted to get them out. And it, it was almost like um, a chase through the weed, you know, weeding a garden. Every time I went through that book, I'd find one more anachronism on a page, that sort of thing. But I wanted to, I wanted to try to create a state of mind that existed before um, our present culture began. How did Egyptologists take your book? Well, to my surprise, the only contact I had that way was I gave a talk at the University of Pennsylvania before uh, a number of e Egyptologists. And to my surprise, a few of them said, you know, Mayer's uh, pretty much on the mark. His book's not bad. That pleased me because uh, people who are experts in a profession do not look lightly on people invading their turf. How did you do the research before you wrote that book? Oh, I spent 11 years writing that book. And so what I'd do is I'd read a section, and then I'd write it, and then I'd come to another section. And it was all sorts of research, but none of it was easy. The research was more difficult in that book than any book I've written. Uh, Egyptologists very often are not the 
nicest and most comfortable writers in the world to follow. Some of the books are almost impenetrable. You really have to work very, very hard on them. There also were, there's something called the Lepsius Denkmaler, which is a huge anthology of books, about 11 books. Each of them, when opened, would be the size of this table, like five and a half feet by two and a half feet. When you open them, printed in Germany around 1840, and when you turn the pages, it was like a sail flapping. <laughs> uh, it was incredible. They were made of some sort of canvas or heavy linen. Anyway, they had all the drawings that you found in all the tombs of each period, and that was extraordinary stuff. The detail that was wonderful. For instance, when I had to do the Battle of Kadesh, which is the major battle in the book, and takes up a good 50 pages of the book at least, these drawings gave you an intimate sense of the camp life. There were little drawings of uh, one pack mule or stallion on top of another. You know, horses mating, lions running beside the pharaoh, not lions, a lion running beside the pharaoh, soldiers cooking. These were extraordinary moments and taught you an awful lot about what the life in Egypt was like. Finally, you had to use your imagination to, to put it together. Did you study the Egyptian language at all? I tried to. I, I learned enough about it to realize that there's some extraordinary elements in the Egyptian language. And one of them is that uh, they had a thousand words for copulation, really? which is why I have a, there's a scene in the book where uh, Menenhedeth, the man who's born many times in his first life, he makes love to the Pharaoh's queen. And she goes wild and she starts talking to him and using all these words. So she says, oh, my boat, my coffin, my field, and, and goes on with a, with a hundred different words, my musical instrument. And so forth. It's semi-comic, but it was also intended to be the number of words one could apply to an act of uh, yes. copulation. I learned enough about their language to know that they absolutely saw things in different ways. Uh, you know, it was a primitive language, and therefore uh, they tend to see things in terms of montage. Primitive languages usually have much less emphasis on tense than we do. I've noticed, for instance, in classical Hebrew, the past tense and the future tense are distinguished only by putting an and in front of the verb. If you say he went, that's past tense. If you say and he went, that's future. And I thought about it for a long time. It seemed to me that in dreams, we do not distinguish between past and future. And so for a primitive, they're really only two. When you don't have clocks around, you don't have schedules, you don't have any of that stuff, you don't have technology, then there are really only two tenses. There's the here and now, and there's that other tense, that other time that what happened yesterday may not quite have happened yesterday so much as been an augur of what's going to happen tomorrow. Because for a primitive, what happened yesterday is, is, is almost as spooky as what's happening tomorrow. Did you go to Egypt? Yeah, but I left in a hurry, being there about a week. I thought, if I hang around here, I'll never write the book. Because what had happened is Egypt had gone, was after the, the war with Israel in 74. The population of Cairo had increased from 2 million to something like 6 million in one year. The town was teeming. Uh, everything was awful, as it would be in a city that's grown that quickly. Um, and as a result, um, I just felt there's no trace of ancient Egypt here. This is all being trampled under by hordes. Let me get out of here or I won't write the novel. And I did that. Never went back. Along with your writing career, you've also been an actor and a director. Can you talk a little bit about comparing directing? You, you directed Tough Guys. Comparing that to writing. And you also wrote the screenplay and the novel. No. Well, it's, it, it's altogether different. There, there's almost no similarity between directing and writing. In fact, they're a antithetical. I remember toward, I'd written the screenplay for Tough Guys Don't Dance. And at the time I was writing, I thought, boy, this is one terrific screenplay. And when I was directing the picture, toward the end of it, I uh, 
discovered what I call the nimshot. You know, have you ever wondered why when you read a script, it's 120 pages, a movie script, and it comes in at 120 minutes, when we all know that each page of a movie script is about, an hour, about a minute and 10, 15, 20 seconds? The answer is very simple. You cut scenes out of that script. Right. And, and so a nimshot is N-I-M, not in movie. And I'd be going along working toward the end of the film, and I'd read a scene that we we're going to do, and I'd say, who the hell wrote this scene? This scene's no good at all. We don't need it. The actors have done it already. So in a certain sense, being a director is exciting, and there's a great deal of fun. I've probably had more working fun being a director than any other kind of job I ever took on. I love film directing. And, of course, it's marvelous for one part of your ego because you're treated like a general. You have all the emoluments of being a general without the bloodshed. Uh, you know, in fact, I mean, people come up to you and say, um, they'll bring up the, the star, and they'll say, how does her hair look? And you'll say, you know, I think I like a little curl in the corner of her forehead. And uh, they say, yes, sir. Would Norman Mailer, the director, ever rehire Norman Mailer, the writer, to work on a screenplay? Yeah, probably because I would figure I could bully him. <laughs> I could say to him, you know, you think, you're not as good as you think you are. <laughs> you got a lot to learn about writing movie scripts. Uh, there's a Norman Mailer film which I don't think very many people know know much about. I've never seen it, but would dearly love to. King Lear. Oh, uh, I never saw it either. Really? No, no. Uh, I had a huge fight with uh, Godard, and uh, I don't want to get into it because it's just damned unpleasant. But he uh, he's a marvelous film director, but I don't like him one bit. It's just a long, dull story to get into it. But in any event, I disliked the experience with him so much I didn't even go look at the movie. And in fact, I'm only in the beginning in two scenes. Well, he never read King Lear. He now, never Try writing a screenplay on King Lear, a modern King Lear for a man who refuses to read King Lear. That was, that was one of the difficulties uh, we had. Let us move on, if we, if we may, to A Fire on the Moon. Your feeling about the entire space enterprise of our century. I had a lot of feelings at the time. I don't know that, that much has happened one way or the other. It's still ongoing, of course. Uh, I think they had huge ambitions at the time, and what with economic troubles and the Cold War and this and that, they never quite got the development they were looking for. I think they're probably behind schedule. I expect <laughs> No, I expect they were looking to be in orbit around Mars by now rather than, than around the moon. They still don't have a space station on the moon. I have the same difficulty with it now that I had when I was writing that book which is it was very hard to decide if this was a noble enterprise or a folly. And uh, when you consider everything that's wrong on Earth, it seems like a folly to devote that much attention to the other. On the other hand, at the rate at which we're poisoning the Earth, it may be that these spaceships are the only way a few people are going to get out. They'll have to recolonize in, on, in some other planets in 50 years from now. Uh, you know, that's, what I'm getting at, that used to be just a scenario over the horizon. As you get older, you begin to realize the depth of, uh, of, of uh, ugliness in the human soul. You begin to wonder, well, maybe we will destroy the whole damn thing. Maybe we are going to have to move out, move on. Maybe this is some, some deep impulse, some instinct in humans that they have to get ready to migrate. But this was a challenge to strive rather than simply a message of despair, was it not? Yes. Oh, ostensibly. Well, I mean, not even ostensibly. It actually was a, hu a huge achievement. It was a fantastic achievement. But there's an emptiness lagging behind it now. You know, if you remember, no one felt any joy compared to the magnitude of the event. I remember when the event occurred, there wasn't that much happiness on Earth. People didn't say, wonderful, we're on the moon, we're a fantastic species. There was more a feeling of, what are we doing? Why are we on the moon? 
that for me, I always had felt a great ambivalence about that that project. And in writing the book, I had to live with that ambivalence. I didn't know if I approved of it or de- or detested it. It was very hard to tell. Norman Mailer, what was it in you that attracted you to write a biography of the early life of Pablo Picasso? What attracted me to Picasso in the first place is that he gave me sanction. I saw how many styles in which he'd worked. And I, in the, when I was younger, I used to be bothered by the fact that I didn't seem to have a theme that unified my work. And then I realized, finally, the only theme for certain people, like Picasso, and in a much smaller way like for myself, is that the theme is that we're developing, a, a, we're trying to develop a vision of existence. And so no matter what direction we go in, the attempt to uncover that vision is always present. Uh, so in that sense, one's work does have a unity. And, and I got an awful lot from Picasso just by knowing that about him, that you can work in many styles. If you, Norman Mailer, could call back any of your works and either revise or simply cancel it out. Um, I wouldn't cancel out any of them. No, not any. Them. Would, would, it's would like you, having children. I say, no, yeah. let's execute that child. Forget it. Would you revise any of them? No, probably not. I, I think the, the record of what you're doing, it's not that they're that perfect, that they can't be revised, but it, I, I, I think it's a mistake. I think it's better to move on because you, you, what you do is you blur the historical authenticity of any particular book by revising it. I revised, by the way, a little bit for, for the time of our time because I'd go through something and find that there was dead wood in it. And since these were all short pieces and excerpts, I'd sometimes combine it with something else I'd written. So, for example, in um, The Superman Goes to the Supermarket, which is about Kennedy's 1960 convention in Los Angeles, parts of it, as I remembered, it was terrific, but when I read it, not all of it was terrific. Some of it was dead wood. So I cut out the dead wood and, and put in little excerpts from The Harlot's Ghost, which had a... Um, airline stewardess who's having an affair with Kennedy, who was president at the convention in 1960. And I interlarded sections from that book. What I wanted it to end up being was a social and cultural history of America, as one man saw it myself. We've closed an era with the end of the Cold War, and we're entering a new era. Does Norman Mailer have anything to say about where we're going? I don't know where we're going. I'm terrified about where we're going, because... Um, uh, I think this country is a mess at this point, just a, a spiritual mess. We have bad ecology here, but we have very bad spiritual ecology here. Cold War is a large part of that, because for 40 years, we all were comfortably aligned in a magnetic field where we all were hating the same thing, the evil empire. Uh, there was communism, that godless, materialistic universe that we had to combat. And, you know, the, the amount of uh, bourgeois in that was uh, not to be believed. Uh, <laughs> You know, what we were dealing with was a poor, oppressive, huge country that was at the level of a third world country. They happened to have a powerful KGB and they had a powerful army. That was the reason why those endless nuclear fission things were being built all the time. We didn't need them. We, we had 10 times, each country had 10, 20 times the power needed to destroy the world. But we kept building them because that was the best way to bankrupt them. And we bankrupted them. That's how we won the Cold War. Well, when it ended, a great switch was thrown. And the magnetic findings are now no longer all pointing in the same direction. But for 40 years, they've been used to being filled with hate toward the enemy. So which is why the, this country is now in a kind of collateral chaos. Everybody's hating everybody. There's more animosity in public life now than I can ever recall. Every group, every clique is now at war with every other one. If we get into a depression, I'm just scared of what's going to happen. Because, uh, you know, with, with the crunch now on the safety net being removed, you can have riots in the ghettos in a depression. And if you have that, you're going to have barbed wire. And once you have the barbed wire, you're going to have the press being closed down. And before you know it, we'll have a fascism. And the only thing we can be certain of in that fascism is that whatever it's called, it won't be called that. 
Now, that's the worst scenario. I'm hoping that there's every reason to hope for it, that we'll muddle through economically and we won't have that, that crunch. But if we get into a crunch, there's nothing here to hold it off. All of the constraints have been removed. Yeah, the safety net's been removed and there's no left left. You know, the left is fragmented now into a group, into small power groups who each has their own agenda and there's no vision any longer on the left. Uh, there's just a kind of despair and a, a lack of comprehension. And, uh, I mean, the rich are taking over everything. Uh, not the rich, the corporations. Uh, you know, everybody's getting money mad, which, which is the, the worst kind of... I mean, capitalism has always been able to exist so long as the products were good. But now there's no interest in the products. It's the marketing that counts. So, I, no, I'm not terribly optimistic. You were once or described yourself as a, uh, a left, left conservative. conservative. Uh, left this conservative. Doesn't, this doesn't sound like a left conservative to me. Why not? I believe that uh, one of the, that the trouble with the left always was that they threw everything conservative out. And uh, what's wrong with the conservatives is that they're never true to the notion that what's important is that traditions be maintained. In fact, the conservatives have done more to destroy the fiber of this country than the left because they've been money mad. And a good conservative is not money mad, not money mad at all. Once marketing products becomes everything, you don't care what you do to sell them. That's not conservatism. So the conservatives have destroyed family life. You ask me how, I'll tell you how, through commercials on television. You know, we live a life where every seven minutes, if we're watching something and kids no longer read, so they watch television, they're interrupted by a commercial. Well, that makes you violent. We all know if we're interrupted when we want to say something, we get a little angry. Just take a, t a tough young kid who who's full of potential violence and interrupt them all the time, and you'll see what will happen. And that's what we're doing. If there was a clamp down on television, and the only thing you could show on television is Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm, what would happen is all the kids would get to the point where they'd want to off Rebecca because of the interruptions of the commercials. You know, media is part of our difficulty. Advertising is interruption. Well, now that you have published this volume, The Time of Our Time, uh, do you feel that your, your work is essentially complete or nearly complete, or do you have major projects yet to go? Well, I hope it's not uh, that elite. At 75, you just can't start making predictions on what you're going to do. Uh, but there's one book I absolutely want to write, and that's the second volume of Harlot's Ghost. I made the promise seven years ago to be continued. Well, I, you know, I wrote, I've done four other books in the meantime, but I've kept waiting for some kind of uh, idea of how to go on with it. Because don't forget, the CIA has changed completely since 91. By 91, the end of the Cold War came, and suddenly the CIA, which had been enormously important and uh, one of the spectral elements in our assessment of America, has suddenly became an ordinary bureaucratic organization in the mind of most Americans. And so I didn't know how to do it because the second volume had to be at least as good as the first volume of Where Were We? So for that reason, um, I couldn't figure out a way to do it, but I think I found a way now. I'm not going to talk about it, of course, but uh, let's see. But maybe I can get going on it in the next couple of months. Do you see yourself finding yet another area, or do you think you're just going to stick with biography and fiction from here on out? I think the likelihood that I'll stick with it is greater than ever before. If somebody came along and said, direct a movie, I'd say, you bet, let's do it. Uh, it because unless I were in the middle of a novel and felt it was truly important for me that I keep working on it, I, I love making movies. That's the only way I can put it. So I, I, But I don't think anyone's going to come knocking on my door and saying, here's five million, ten million bucks to make a movie. So uh, odds are I will be writing a fiction and biography for, for the rest of my days. Norman Mailer's final novel... The Castle in the Forest, about the early life of Adolf Hitler, was intended to be the first of a trilogy, but Mailer died in 2007, a few months after its publication. He never got around to writing his long-awaited sequel to Harlot's Ghost. 
and you can listen to other interviews either as Radio Alinsky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>